1: Nathan and Joy Clarkson, Enneagram Sevens, both of you, brother and sister, Joy, scholar, author, host of Speaking with Joy, the podcast and storyteller, Nathan, award-winning actor, best-selling author of the memoir, Different and the memoir, Good Man, and the upcoming book by the two of you, the Clubhouse. Wow, that was a mouthful, Anthony. <laughs> we were just talking
2: it, before we got on here. This is our first uh, set of siblings.
1: It is. And did you hear their CV? It's like so long. We just have to close the show now. It's like <laughs> we took all of our time describing their credits.
2: And Post will be rolling the music right now.
3: <laughs> See you later, folks.
2: That's great. Boy, we had a
1: great time with Nathan and Joy, didn't we? They were, they were really something. I, I, I loved it. Again, like Anthony said, first time siblings on the show. Not often do you get siblings of the same type, the enthusiast, mm. uh, on, the, on the same show. And I want to dive into that. What the heck was your house like growing up with two sevens banging around, probably like pinballs?
3: That's a good question. And funnily enough, there's a little story that goes with why we might be sevens. Um, I was about, I don't know six years old I think no I was five I was five years old and I told my mom I really wanted a little sister and she was 42 at the time and says oh honey no that's not gonna happen and at the same time she was trying to teach me because she's a good Christian mother the power of prayer and so I said well I'm gonna start praying for a little sister and you know she didn't want to To ruin my understanding of God and prayer and these things. Um, but she didn't know how to let me down until this isn't going to happen. So I started praying every day. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, she was pregnant, um, with joy. So I think God endowed us endowed joy with my my personality so I could have someone to hang out with who got me. Uh, but joy and I are the class clowns and the, the fun, the fun. I I hate to say that, but we're the, we're the fun people of the family, but we're also the youngest boy and youngest girl. So honestly, it was a lot of fun. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
4: yeah well and I feel like with a with a name like joy I was bound to be a seven right Like, what would I do <laughs> What would I do if I wasn't a seven what would I would done if I was just a really depressive type No I think Nathan and I were the extroverts of the the crowd and it's fun because we're like we express our sevenness and our enthusiasticness in very different ways mm. um, but we definitely brought a lot of energy and a lot of verbal there was I mean our family was fairly verbal and intense anyway We bring a lot of kind of scotch-irish wit enthusiasm and temper and so um so you might think that nathan and i brought the intensity and i would say we brought the energy but the intensity was already there
2: what's the landscape of the family do you know what the other numbers might be
4: so my dad would be a five right nathan
3: yeah i think so that that makes sense
4: i was actually i'm not exactly sure what my mom is we were talking about this yesterday there's i think
3: she could be a four a one an eight
4: I would say, I don't think an eight. I think she's a four or one Hmm. because There's a strong ideals center. Yeah, I think she might be a one. And then my sister is definitely a four. And then our brother, our other brother is, I think, a two.
2: Right? Hmm. Okay.
3: Yeah. So we're kind of all over.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. You're you're covering the the spectrum of types almost, you know? Mm
3: -hmm. We're trying. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get the
1: Duggars on the show. (laughs) can we do that because we gotta get every single type out of that group
3: right i'd love to come back for that one if i can right and watch and we get
1: some hillbilly humor out of that no doubt right right yeah love to probe into the dugger psyches that that would be something to behold multi multi episodes for that one maybe a whole maybe a whole season all right now you guys grew up you loved using the myers-briggs as a, did you do that as a family was that like something the family yeah. was into
4: yeah so my had... dad was a certified tester like you have to oh. like you know when you do like the the like actual training with the mbti, MBTI institute so he did that and he would do like workshops and we would have nights where everybody come over and talk about it and yeah so it was it was, it was a big deal and it well, was
3: also something i think that was a big part of our family dynamic because we did have four kids and i know that's not tons and tons, but uh, I'd say nowadays, four kids is a lot, and I think it really gave us this grid and understanding for understanding the unique and sides and differences between all of us, and that was something we grew up with, so it wasn't so much, um, we learned how to understand that each other had differences, and those were good and worthy of being celebrated, so it, I think it really helped us both self-learn and others learn as we grew up, having these kind of grids of personality understanding, um, yeah. so that was something, yeah, I really loved it
4: and i think also you know as our parents were trying to help us get along there was a lot of uh which i really appreciate there was a strong impulse for self-awareness and mm-hmm. a desire to be like sometimes when your siblings do things that you don't enjoy it's not because they're specifically trying to hurt you or annoy you it's or because that bad or they're bad it's just because people are different and we all relate differently which is i think really helpful because that can you know keep certain personality types just from feeling like they are bad to exist Mm. um but yeah i mean i think our family just we're kind of odd when you think about it this way but like around the dinner table there's kind of three things you'll talk about art film books words we do a lot of like vocabulary and i don't know how you can discuss words we do that and then talking about personalities and kind of trying to think about what makes us tick why we love what we love and cool well that was
3: helpful for me because i grew up with um a lot of learning disabilities and uh, mental illness that got diagnosed very early. So having that understanding of celebrating differences rather than being ostracized or shamed because you fall outside of this familial or even cultural norm was really important for me as a young kid to kind of grasp this idea of we're made uniquely. Mm. And so that was something that was really beneficial to a young kid who had learning disabilities and mental illness. So I love the idea of these these things, these tests that can help us understand and even more than that, celebrate ourselves. Mm.
1: All right, so let's just pop in on that for a second. You, uh, in your material, you talk about uh, being neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know how an Enneagram 7 navigates a world in which they feel so different. And I'm making a guess here that you um, probably experienced some measure of social suffering. As, as a result, is that is that fair?
3: Oh yeah, I can, um, it, it's not an isolated isolated incident that multiple teachers have yelled at me in front of entire classes of people. And I was sitting there un, not knowing why this was happening. So this was something that happened pretty regularly.
1: Mm. Okay, so to talk, talk to us a little bit about what neurodivergent means. Uh, and how did you navigate as a seven early on um suffering
3: hmm that's a great question and i don't know if i've ever had that one posed on a podcast before how did i navigate suffering um yeah as neurodivergent is people who who diverge from the typical um the norm uh the kind of understood and expected way of thinking and viewing the world and that you know there's all sorts of different labels i can take in different ways it can go um, for me it was i was diagnosed with ocd very early on adhd odd um, a lot a lot of things um, and then later on was diagnosed with depression and uh, dyslexia i could go on the, li- the list is really really long and the things i was diagnosed with but the way that looked practically in the life of a young kid um, especially one who loved people love connection love expressing himself love Um, all these things is it made me I I, I experienced the grief in feeling alone and separated Um, and I'd say that one of the things I look back and and that affected me most was feeling inherently bad Mm. and feeling inherently wrong and this was not for my family thank goodness I had a family who celebrated me and loved me but in any situation outside of the context of my family I felt I, I began to notice at a young age oh I'm different and I don't, I don't know. I can't do these. I can't read like this person. I can't understand this problem like this person in school. I don't know how to stop talking when everyone else seem, seems to be able to. I don't know how to stop fighting or, or questioning or asking questions. And that seems to bring me a lot of trouble. And so I found myself as a kid feeling wrong, like the me, the, the central part of who I was was wrong. And. Um, and I guess as I'm trying to think about how I processed pain, I think a lot of times I didn't, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It was something that I just chose not to. Um, and obviously that has negative repercussions later on in life. But I learned to a little bit live with my dukes up and uh, learned how to take it, take one on the jaw. And I would say that processing pain was not and is not my strength. So, yeah, that's kind of what it looks like.
4: Yeah. I wonder as a sibling watching you, um, you were exceptionally creative. And sometimes I feel like that was a, I don't know if that was a, an outlet, but it,
3: mm, yeah, that's it. That's a good, I don't think I knew I was processing pain in the context of creativity, but you're right. I did find, um, solace and joy in my creative pursuits, especially ones that, that revolved around narrative around story and i you know when i look at stories when i look at the you know I was as a kid i love superman i love batman i love the, the heroes and those are the places i guess like, yeah joy you're right that's a good insight that i found comfort inside these stories because they gave me an arc to look at and one where i could place myself and have a future that envisioned hope for mm-hmm. me if i could identify with these characters that went through their own battles mm. um, that's yeah that's a really good insight
2: that's good because sevens are future oriented right Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely. Ones, three, sevens, and eights are their orientation to time is the future. Fours, fives, and nines, their orientation to time is the past. Ones, twos, and sixes, the orientation to time is the present. Um, uh-huh. And when you know that, by the way, it, it provides you with a lot of insight into why oftentimes people don't get along. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, if you're married and you are married to a person with a different time orientation, once you know that, it really explains some of the rub. That can happen mm. in the relationship, right? Because your particular orientation to time, you will unconsciously assume is the right one. It's the normal one. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and so that means it gives you leash to uh, judge uh, someone whose orientation to time is different. Mm? And that, of course, doesn't end well. Ends in tears for everybody, as, oh, as yeah. they say. Um, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're both storytellers and and interested in story. Um, you know that the communication style for sevens is storytelling, right? I do now. So every every type has a, a sort of a has a communication style. So for hmm. ones, it would be you know teaching. When when not careful, it devolves into preaching. Twos, you know, or you know, how else do I say? It? Like threes would be uh, promotion and marketing. Uh, fours would <laughs> fours would be lament. Uh, hmm. Fives symposium. Is what we say uh, wow. you know six is catastrophizing mm-hmm. uh, seven storytelling uh, eights uh, barking authority is a word we use sometimes uh, and nines it's called epic saga uh, huh. and uh, so anyway it it it, it is a it, it's no surprise to me that both of you are storytellers because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's your that's sort of your natural zone as a seven. And going back to, to you, Nathan, I think that um, there would be similarities to every type, I guess, as to how they they navigate or integrate suffering early in life, right but um, the seven typically would retreat into their into the headspace, right, and they would they yeah. would very much retreat in, they would um, create something of a neverland hmm. uh, and so sixes kind of cope with the world, their anxiety. And you have OCD, which is sort of an an um, anxiety-based disorder. And, you know, I think um, that with all that anxiety, sevens tend to cope with anxiety by creating a world of unlimited possibilities and fun and and story and everything Mm -hmm. seems to be shimmering. To the seven, mm. right, with possibility. Yeah, possibility um, everywhere. Yes, everywhere, right? And that's
3: Definitely. where the hope lays, too, right. in the possibility.
1: Yes, and so a six copes, in many ways, with anxiety through pessimism, and the seven mm. with optimism. Mm. Mm. Does, that, does that ring true in your experience? Yeah,
3: yeah, it does. I think, I think you know, when I mentioned earlier that, I, that in processing my pain, it wasn't something... I wanted to do uh i'd rather find a way to move forward to look forward to hope for tomorrow and it's interesting hearing about the communication types because that that resonates with me so strongly um that i communicate i even think my whole my whole interior world my mind is in the context of narrative and story everything i see is a part of the story and interestingly enough my ocd triggers revolve around things that don't fit the narrative of my story how they should Ooh. you know if you imagine yourself in a movie mm. i'm going this thing doesn't fit in this scene this this person doesn't belong to that shouldn't have been said and so my triggers always revolved around things that didn't fit the narrative of the life and the story i wanted to live so that that's really interesting
2: mm. Mm.
1: so um joy as you think about your life as a seven and by the way i'm also curious are you like a maybe an E-N-T-P.
3: Yeah, well done. Yeah.
1: What about you, Joy?
4: Um, I tend to come out as an e, E-N and then stronger F-J, but I can kind of sometimes vacillate on the T and the F and the P and the J. <laughs> yeah,
1: I would imagine vacillating on the T and the F would be true if you're a mm-hmm. a seven. Um, Fs, I don't want to stereotype, but often fall into that heart triad. You know, um, but I would say a lot of times with sevens, they sort of fall in that ENTP space. And there's some literature out there correlating Enneagram types with Myers-Briggs types. Uh, mm-hmm. And which is kind of fascinating, uh, all speculative, but interesting to read about, you yeah. know, and uh, now both of you mentioned uh, early before we started recording about the importance of self-knowledge and self-awareness and learning about who we are and why we are and wrestling with large existential questions. Joy, talk to me about that in, in your life.
4: Hmm. Well, I think... I'll talk to you about it in my life right now. I'll zoom in on the, though I am a future oriented person, right now I'm in the space where I just submitted a PhD and I'm looking at what are the choices I'm making. And when I think about that, um, for me what feels really important is knowing why you make the decisions you make. Uh, And a lot of that boils down to what you want, um, what you're afraid of, and being able to kind of pinpoint those things and, um, not try to control them, but just kind of be aware of what's orienting me in the world and, and what makes me move towards certain things when I'm in a place of stress or of disintegration. Um, that I think is, that's for me has been one of the, the most important things about self reflection, whether it's with an ERAM or just kind of prayer and being thoughtful or, or with Myers-Briggs is thinking about what motivates me in the world. So like, um, When I'm in a happy, good place, I am. uh, I'm. I I love to dig in deep. You know, I think they. Correct me if I'm wrong, but sevens, in a good place, become kind of scholarly and excited and yeah, like fives,
1: right? You go to the high side of five.
4: five. And so I like to think that I'm incredibly healthy because I've gone into academics. (laughs) You know, that means that I've just you know really maxed out. Um, But uh what's funny is that when i when i first encountered the enneagram this is kind of me getting off on a trail when i first encountered the enneagram it was actually in grad school and it was a whole bunch of my friends were really into it and they were like oh you're for sure a one which i don't think you're supposed to tell people what no. number they are no uh, so that was definitely not um and i remember reading it thinking, i'm not this but as i started to kind of read through the enneagram and um think about what number I was and I read the seven and I thought that's what I am. I thought, oh, well, of course they thought I was a one. I was in a super stressed, not healthy place in my life. Right. And, and I think, so I think having the awareness of what motivates me, what do I love, what do I fear, but also what does it look like when I'm not healthy? Having those tools for kind of evaluating a scale of growth is really helpful so that you're making good choices and that you're moving forward and that you're not kind of being ruled by, um,
0: Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at Hmm.
1: That's really great. Are you drawn to the mystics?
4: Oh, for sure.
1: That's a very seven quality. Yeah. Really Uh, seven quality. Um, uh, Lots of, there's a particular uh, type of seven that is really drawn to the mystics and to mystical experience. And, um, and even, I don't know if I would say the contemplative life, though Though some are, you know. But I, there are a lot of sort of seven mystics. St. Francis would be a perfect example of a seven mystic,
3: mm. you know. St. Francis was a seven. Yes. Hmm, this makes a lot of sense.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, total seven behavior all over the place, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's, I wrote a book about Francis, so he's one of my favorite all-time historical figures
3: oh yeah absolutely that's interesting
4: it makes me think of with the connection with mystics because i think people often think of mystics as like very you know yeah demure and serious and you know and not that sevens can't be serious and but there's this kind of pull toward future towards optimism towards hope and it makes me think of um so when you said are you are you into the mystics i wanted to be like which one because there are many that i love um be specific but I say, but one of them is, I think it was true of Avila that said, God saved me from the gloomy saints. And that there was this sense of like, I love it in Teresa and mm. Julie. And also of this like need to, to reckon with the darkness of the world, because we have that kind of fear, pain and everything, but then to find the, the beauty or the joy or the gold at the heart mm-hmm. of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that, I don't know. I, that, that seems to me to be something I'm very drawn to.
1: Yeah. Looking for um, the pony, as we might say in, in, in common parlance, right? Looking for the pony. <laughs> um, so how, in your experience, if I had your parents on here, right? It, and I said to them, how do you raise sevens? Hmm. What, do, what would they say? That's
3: a good question. You know, um, I did write a book about uh, (laughs) what it's like to grow up as a seven and from my mom's perspective, what it's like to raise a seven. Um, But in going off the themes that we explored there, I think one thing that was always difficult for me, still, it still really is, you know, I chose a life of an actor and a writer and a filmmaker where I get to choose everything I do um, and no one's telling me what to do ever, Uh, which is, I think, something that has a lot to do with my, well, has everything to do with my personality. But I'd say knowing that about myself, and about this type is it's, how do I say it? I, I don't want to be a cliche, but it's giving them room to be themselves. Mm-hmm. It's giving them room to explore um, who they want to be. It's giving them room to live outside of the box and be celebrated for that rather than imposing, um, imposing preconceived grids and notions and boundaries. Um, I'm not talking about training, I'm not talking about discipline, those are important things. I'm talking about expectations of personality or or um, what life should look like, how they should act. Let them live into and explore their own personhood, even if it doesn't look like um, what culture, church, family expects or thinks it should.
1: Hmm.
4: And I think um, I this is kind of a, on the opposite end of that. Um, I feel like one of the problems with sevens and I see this in both Nathan's and my own life is that we're, pre- we are Renaissance people. We can like kind of mm. do most of what you'd throw at us. And, um, and that can lead to just like having, you always have so many options. And so I think one of the things that's helpful or that would be helpful with parents is, uh, teach your sevens how, uh, when to say yes, and how to say no, you know, like, mm. how mm. to evaluate what is the possibility we're saying yes to, because my impulse is always just to, like, do everything, and yeah. I can imagine, I you know, I remember when I was in high school, I really wanted a job, and I was like, even this really boring job could be so fun, imagine, it would be great, you'd meet people, you'd make money, and, um, and I just kind of have the capacity to imagine the good in almost anything, and so, but, and that's a great wonderful exciting thing and makes me good at a lot of things but it can also mean that you can say yes to way too much
3: i remember my therapist joy um he once said that intuitives make terrible investors because they see the good in everything even in places they shouldn't they see the possibility in everything Mm -hmm. so on the flip side of what i said i completely agree i think that um let them explore but also help them focus Mm -hmm. their energy into things that have the most possibility for good
0: yeah
1: you know i have a friend of mine who has a seven son who developed a gambling problem Mm. and she said that one time he said to her uh, in a time of crisis he said i never saw a hand i didn't think was a winner
2: Mm.
3: interesting
1: and that's that kind of i call that uh, that's toxic positivity Mm -hmm. Uh, and sevens have to be careful of that that that, that sometimes positivity can have a toxic quality to it, yeah. right? A self-destructive quality to it that they have to, you know, be vigilant about and, and to make sure that they don't fall prey to their own um, kind of delusional optimism about life, yeah. you know? I also have a seven son, and I, I'll brag on him for a little bit. He goes to Brown University, just, just is graduating now, and – it worked out in some ways to be a great place for him because there are no course requirements. So it's just one mm. big buffet. Like you don't have to That's do, awesome. like you just go and you're like, I remember his first semester at school, Anthony. He, I said, well, what, what, what's your favorite course right now? He goes, Atlantic Pirates. <laughs> 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 and I said, you're taking a course on Atlantic pirates and he started going into, yeah, you know, I'm learning about the knots and the boats and what pirates did and, you know, on and on and on, but at a deep academic level. Right. right? right. So currents and things like that and why pirates did this. And, and I said, (laughs) $70,000 Atlantic (laughs) pirates. I'm paying for it. But for a seven, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, but for a seven, (laughs) it was heaven and it was also hell. And it was also interesting because um, where he has learned now, and my kids all know the Enneagram, he's 24 now and what, what they've learned and what he's now learning through experience is how much he needs structure. Yeah. Like he has to have structure. If, if he, if he doesn't, that freewheeling mind runs all over the place Mm -hmm. and, and he, he never finds the, the, he overruns his the banks of his own river, you know, yeah. and it's just, you know, and so he's learning that now as he's, you know, I mean, that's the gift of the Enneagram, the gift of self-awareness is like, it's just going to save you time. He's mm. not going to learn that now at 30. He can know it now. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, I uh, at
3: 30. Yeah. I learned rhythm and the importance of structure at 30 and I'm still learning it, but yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
1: And of course being in a PhD program, but, and of course as a scholar, you have to hunker down and get focused, you know. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, and it's and it's funny because I don't, <clears throat> I know it's different in in the U.S., but the UK PhD programs are very. You do have to hunker down, but they're very unstructured. You know, yes. they kind of just say you you send in a proposal, they say good, you read with an advisor, and they set you loose. And um, I really struggled the first year because I mm. would just. I would just end up reading, I read a whole bunch of books that I loved, but I would just get really into books that I didn't actually need to read for my PhD. And I'd be like, great, I've read everything that Alistair McIntyre wrote. That doesn't really have anything to do with my PhD. Um, And the thing that really helped me was that in my second year, I was living in Oxford. And there was this thing called the scriptorium where you would go in the morning, they'd have morning prayer. Everybody had to sit around and say what you wanted to get done that day. You'd work for an hour and a half. They give you coffee. You'd work for an hour and a half. They give you lunch. You'd work for an hour and a half. Coffee, mm. and just having that three days a week where I would go and have structured time, I wrote like sixty percent of my thesis just just because I had that structure, and uh, and it had to be a structure that was outside of me that I wasn't just internally generating.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, do you, Do you know what's helped me is I've realized I don't do well with schedules. Right. I don't do well with you know at ten thirty you're doing this at you know schedules always make me feel constrained and tied in and the day then the day has no mystery or excitement in it or life or week or whatever it is um but what it has helped me a lot and you know again this is a learning journey i'm still learning it but it's i don't need a schedule but i do need a checklist and what that look because i because i'm an actor an author and a podcaster and, and i i have my own schedule i make it and if i'm not careful like joy was saying you have all this free time that you are the master of your own fate and a lot of a lot of times you'll, okay, well, I played six hours of video games, didn't get a lot done today, even though I have all these big dreams. Um, but so the checklist has always really helped me. It's like if I can start my day knowing at the end of it, I want to have all this done, then I can play six hours of video games, even as long as I get everything I need done in that one last hour. Um, but that gives me the freedom to live in my personality the way, I do, the way I do and it was made to, but also it, it pulls me along and it pulls me forward and gives me the practical steps that every day I'm making progress in my life. So checklist versus um, uh, schedule has really helped. That concept has really helped me a mm. lot.
1: Yes, you know, uh, the, uh, the passion, of course, of the seven is gluttony. And uh, <laughs> meaning that they cannot possibly cram enough, Fun, excitement, adventures, escapades, um, ideas, uh, convers- yeah. fascinating conversations, books, uh, everything. They just can't get enough. And so they're cursed with the more, 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 you know, uh, dilemma. And their, their antidotal virtue, the one of the virtues, the virtues supposedly, but one of, I think, several virtues that they have to really cultivate is sobriety. And sobriety mm-hmm. meaning really... Um, focused attention on a singular goal, right? Like it's yeah. like for you to do a PhD, right? It's a wonderful thing for a seven to be able to work their way through, you know, undergrad, master's level work, then PhD work. It's like that requires a lot of singular focus and, and topically a lot of singular focus. And that's a very healthy thing for a seven to stay the course. Don't get dragged off yeah. point. Finish what you start. I bet you there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, sevens who did all their coursework for their PhD and never got to the thesis because something more interesting came along yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that got their attention and off they went, you know, chasing that, mm-hmm. you know. So singular focus, singular focus, long leashes, give them long leashes, but keep them on mm-hmm. a leash, mm-hmm. right? They need a leash, Yeah. but give them a lot of lead. Right, to mm. investigate, it, yeah. you know, Absolutely. if you put too short a lead on a, on a seven, you'll run into a lot of um, resistance mm-hmm. and a lot of pullback because hmm. sevens hate people who shut down their options and they don't like in, limitations imposed on them. Yeah. oh joy you're making a face
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> no I was just having a self-awareness moment <laughs>
1: <laughs> They do not like people who p- try to place limitations on them
4: at all
3: and- well, you know I was diagnosed with ODD which is it, I don't know if you know this but it's mm-hmm. oppositional yes. defiance disorder mm-hmm. as a kid yes and you know I, I highly believe in in, in diagnosis and mental illness and all this but I always question that one I'm like do I have ODD or am you I just it. Is that just my personality? Yeah. Well, and that's a whole other thing about these personality talks and the diagnosis is part of my my personality goes, I'm not a seven. You can't tell me I'm a seven because a seven boxes me in. It tells me what I am. Like, no, oh, I could be any of them at any time. I can switch to a three if I want to. And so it's interesting thinking about that's a very seven reaction to being told you're a seven. Yes. Um,
2: yeah. And it's just like reflexive, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: How dare you? You don't know that. Yes. <laughs> I'm not. Well, yeah.
2: and I,
4: I feel like you have a little bit of eight in you too, Nathan, which has a little bit of That's effect.
3: my wing. Yeah. Yeah. That Do be, those usually go together, seven and eight? No, the seven with six
1: is, you know, very common. Seven hmm. with eight. Those are both the wings of of the seven. Uh Joy would not be as pugnacious as you are. Uh she would that be she would be um more um not as quick to let me put it this way. If, you were t- if the two of you were jumping off a cliff, a 30-foot cliff into the water, Nathan, you would be the first one off without asking how deep it is.
3: Yes, absolutely. Right? Joy I've would literally pro- done that.
1: Yes, and Joy would probably ask how deep it was first, and then she would be one of the first to go, but she has a little bit of the anxiety of the six to asking mm. her the question in her mind, well, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't stop. That's
4: great that's very accurate and i was actually thinking when you were talking about how you cope with anxiety i do storytelling but in a different way than nathan does which is i do i think what is the worst thing that could happen and then i tell myself how i would make it out of that story okay you know and i i reconcile myself to it and move through it which is still a form of storytelling you know it's still a way of it's still future oriented it's still getting through it but it's a more is it a more anxious way of dealing with it or, or it's just i think a more
1: yeah, I mean, I just think that a 7 with a 6 would be more likely to tap the brakes before a 7 with an 8 would. Just mm. tap the brakes a little bit. The 8, just, you know, foot to the floor.
3: Brakes aren't fun. <laughs> brakes are oh, not man. fun.
1: No, you not just fun. keep your foot on the gas. Who needs a break? You know? <laughs> so Anthony and I were laughing because here we are. We're talking to two sevens. You have a, a, a book. When does the book drop or has it dropped? It has. It,
4: has it is drop. out right now. A fun the, the a fun fact um, is that the release date was shifted around because do you remember a few months ago when there was that ship that was stuck in um, mm-hmm.
3: Suez Canal? In the
4: Suez Canal. That, was it the Evergreen or something? Yes. Anyway, it got delayed because it was, I'm sure it wasn't on the Evergreen, but it was like in in the thing. So we-, we
3: In the we canal. Kind
4: of, we think that's kind of fun. You are the
1: second author today on the podcast who has recently had a book come out and- talked about we may have a delay in the actual drop of the book because of paper shortages. I've heard about this. So there's paper problems. There's ink delays. There's all, I mean, you know, gosh, we just bought a house and, and like back in February and I still don't have furniture. So anyway, that's that's how it's going out there in the world, wow. you know. So, all right, but it is not lost on us that two Enneagram sevens uh, have written a book called "The Clubhouse: Open the Door to Limitless Adventure."
3: <laughs> limitless, <laughs>
1: limitless adventure. We couldn't
4: have made this more like cartoonishly accurate.
1: No, 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 up. no. This is a caricature. I've never, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, you know, and you know, you know. Your name is Joy. You've written a book about open the door to limitless adventure. The clubhouse. Which let's is,
2: get lost in our imagination. Let's get lost in our
1: imaginations, uh, creativity and play. I mean, really. By the way, I'm encouraging everyone to buy this uh, this book, and, and here's why. Yeah. Nobody writes with more authority on the topic than two Enneagram Sevens. That's right.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And this is biographical. This isn't just made up. This was Mm -hmm. literally written about me and my siblings. I was 10 years old, and Joy helped me write this. And this is literally written about we would go out, Joy and I would go outside. We had this little clubhouse there in Colorado on top of the hill. And every day it would literally be limitless what this clubhouse could be. It was a castle, it was a spaceship, it was a wagon. It was, it was a million different things because joy and i liked working out our imagination in these ways and also in doing that as kids it really did prepare us for the lives we led as adults and we think this is valuable for any number Very any person cool. but this was something that we as sevens i think really naturally did and did together
1: wonderful tell us the arc i mean this is a a, a children's book yes yeah. and which means it's also for adults that's right. And Absolutely. Uh, as all children's books are mm-hmm. uh, arc of the narrative, what is this story that, that gets told?
4: Well, the story is really, um, it is very, it's very simple. It is a girl and a boy. So the the opening line, Nathan, what's the opening line
3: uh, through wooden nails, a boy and girl play. What will the clubhouse be today?
4: And then throughout the whole story, the, the simple narrative is just a girl and a boy. Having these different adventures in a clubhouse through the power of their imagination, and uh, the way it came about was actually Nathan wrote kind of the bones of this poem because it goes through, you know, perhaps it'll be a uh, a um, a wagon that you're wa- you're riding through the wilderness, maybe it'll be a submarine beneath the ocean depths, and he wrote kind of the bones of this when he was nine or ten, mm-hmm. and my dad found it on like a floppy disk. Didn't know this still existed. But do. That's how old I am. Yeah, and so he sent it to Nathan, and then Nathan and I were like, oh, this would be so much fun. And I think part of it was we just so cherished those kind of Hmm. blessedly boring, open-ended, playful afternoons. Hmm. And, you know, um, this is not against screens or anything, but, you know, we feel like there's everything is so full. There's so much stimulation that we wanted to capture the joy of just open-ended play and imagination and delight. And so we did that um, through the story. So it's just a girl and boy. And on one page, it's this. It's a submarine. On one page, it's a castle. On one page, the stage. And the illustrator... Yeah, it
3: just goes on and on.
4: It goes on and on. So it's all the different things it could become. And the illustrator is just uh, Joshua Timothy Taylor. It's just amazing. It's like a very Mm. whimsical Where's Waldo. So there's like tons and tons and tons of details on every page. And there's things Mm, you can find. And um, yeah, and our goal was really just to capture the joy of imagination and play and how our creative capacities, our forward-thinking imaginative capacities can can transform any space into anything through storytelling, and then to inspire parents and kids to go do that, because we think it's so important for many reasons, you know, for, for the pure fun of it, but also for cognitive development, for um, moral development, you know, being able to tell yourself a story and imagine yourself in stories is a part of how you figure out what it means to be um, good or brave or strong, and so anyway, that's that's kind of why we wrote the book, and that's the general arc. Mm.
3: That's wonderful, I love that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean that I, I'm a fan of this book. I know I wrote it. I sound biased, but it, it's I literally because I'm still a child because that's what sevens are. I will pour over the pages and spend an hour just looking at the details and finding. By the way, there's a hidden dog and a hidden cat on every single page, and I had a blast. Spending a lot of time trying to find it, it really is so detailed. So, I'm a grown up who
2: loves his children's book.
4: There's also a hidden bowl of macaroni on every page.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. nice! Eugene Peterson said, Imagination is the way to get inside the truth. Oh, oh. yes, yeah. Mm, yeah. I love that. That mm. is true. Yeah,
1: that is absolutely true. And you know, when we think about <sighs> I don't want to dive too deep into church stuff, but I think one of the greatest problems that the church has is it has no theology of imagination that's widely studied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean. Yeah. There is a theology. I mean, people do write about right theology and imagination. Joy, as you well know, but it, but it, it the church doesn't think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't yeah. talk about it. Doesn't you know? We have a theology discussion about everything, but imagination yeah. and and mm-hmm. actually the paucity of imagination is what so damages. And I think. Mm. I'm going to make a bold statement here that might be get me into trouble. I, I, I think that that's uh, mostly a failure on the part of Protestants mm. because really uh, the oh. Catholics, the Catholic imagination, the sacramental imagination is is such a rich topic uh, in in you know in Catholic writing. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, you know, Joy's going like this. I can tell she wants to say something. I'll
4: send you my PhD when yeah. it's,
1: when it's <laughs> I would love to read it. Yeah, I would love to yeah. read it um, because actually I've given. A couple of lectures on the sacramental imagination and uh, just because I come from a Catholic background and, and that and, and I did graduate work at Fordham, you know, where that that was yeah. a, a big piece of, of the of the conversation. And I
3: walk by it every day. You do? It. Yeah, you I live right in the, the one up by Lincoln Center. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. One okay. of the campuses, yeah. Yeah, I was in the
1: Bronx. Sorry. Um, but I <laughs> hey, took the train t- to the Bronx. But anyway, <laughs> it was a great experience. And and um uh, of course, you know, I, I always sort of get despair a little bit of, of Protestant circles sometimes because of their mm. unfamiliarity with some of these these topics, you know? Not to say none of them are, but I'm just saying there's a good number that let me put it mm-hmm. this way: Main Street Protestants, how's that? are unfamiliar with any conversation around deep discussions on what is imagination, how does yeah. it function? Why is it important, et cetera?
2: Absolutely. Well,
4: and if I can just stick in a little, um, a little, <clears throat> oh, I'm slightly jet lagged. The words not on my brain, uh, caveat. I want to say something about it. Um, we were talking about mystics earlier Yes. and one of the mystics that I studied for my PhD. So the question of my PhD was, kind of how does art form the spiritual life or how can it form mm. particularly the affective life and one of the figures i researched a lot was uh bonaventure mm-hmm. and a lot of the books about bonaventure came from fordham um and bonaventure had this there was this real impulse in the in the 12th century to um to cultivate the emotional and imaginative life there was a sense that to be a really spiritual person you need to feel it deeply in your bones and you needed to really identify with jesus and he as a as a he was the head of the Franciscans, and um, and one of his big kind of things was that he commissioned his priests to create um, images, poetry, music that mm-hmm. help people engage their emotions and their imagination with faith, and, um, and kind of move from this kind of more intellectual capacity to, towards imagination and connection and affection, and... Um, anyway, I like Bonaventure a lot, and I think you're you're right, and I think there are reasons theologically that imagination is maybe a little bit less important from a.
3: But I also think it's such an
4: but it doesn't important.
3: Have Right. It's an aspect of God, though. I mean, in the very opening of Scripture, you see this creator, this artist, who is imagining something and bringing it into being. Imagining is an aspect of God that I think is one of the main aspects of us being created in his image when we act it out. And so it seems like it's a little kid's book about, oh, yeah, imagine, because we hear it tossed away like that all the time, right? Oh, imagination's great, and you see it in kids' contexts. And But I think to imagine is something... Um, that when we take part in, we are acting in the image of God.
1: Absolutely.
3: Mm-hmm. Boy, we could just go off
1: on this subject. I could go off on this subject for a long, yes. long oh, time. Yeah. Forget the Enneagram. Let's just talk about theology <laughs> and imagination and art. Let's just let's just spend a lot of time in, in that space. All right, so um, I want to encourage everybody to go out and get this new wonderful book Uh, the clubhouse open the door to limitless adventure written by two enneagram sevens who better than enneagram sevens to write this book no one he says no one he says uh guys thank you so much for for being on the show
3: thank you for having us it's been great
4: so fun yeah and ian i hope this is okay but i feel like given our conversation i need to tell you that i am also coming out with a book and the only reason i'm saying this is that the title is probably the most it might be even more seven than our title of our
1: book oh i can't wait
4: uh it's called aggressively happy <laughs>
1: <laughs> please tell me that's not true oh. you just made that up didn't you
4: i did not you, I, you can go look at the amazon page
2: <laughs> oh my gosh well maybe you do have an eight wing
1: aggressively happy
2: (laughs)
3: aggressively
2: oh my
1: gosh well on that note ladies and gentlemen you can't whenever people say to me well are you sure and sometimes i have doubts about the enneagram you know what i mean i spend a lot of time in it and i'm but even still you know this little part of me is a little skeptical and i'm always like well i don't know i don't know and then i have a conversation like this and i'm like you can't make it up it's just Just so accurate it's kind of accurate you, you just can't make it up. All right, well, there it is. Joy Clarkson, author of Aggressively Happy and <laughs> The Clubhouse, Open the Door to Limitless Adventure. Uh, Nathan, uh, the book Good Man and the book Different, both memoirs. Um, we've loved having you on. Thank you so much. Again, people, The Clubhouse, Open the Door to Limitless Adventure. Run to your computer now. Go to Amazon. Buy the book. How's that, Anthony? Yeah. I mean, I just, I just wanted to get it out there. That's right, right. That's good.
3: Thank Every, you.
4: You
1: bet. Everybody, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Oh, and may you have fun.